Oh, hello again, everyone. Um, welcome back to our six-part series, Agents of Change, with your co-hosts, Ed Lynn and myself, Nancy Brimhall. Hello. Um, if you've listened to our first two podcasts, which we encourage you to do, you know that we're interested in talking to exceptional individuals who are committed to creating and supporting real change in their field. We purposely invited guests who come from very diverse fields to share with you what is emerging around the world. We love talking about what has motivated them and something of their journey. Ed and I are from careers in the nonprofit sector, as you've come to know, and we really bring our own perspective, of course, um, as we all talk together. In this episode, we speak with Ray Offenheiser, a renowned leader in the fight to end the injustice of poverty and to hold the powerful accountable. From his many experiences, including 20 plus year tenure as president of Oxford America, Ray will share his trajectory as an early expert on hunger and how his thinking has evolved after realizing that the focus on technological solutions was not going to yield the change needed. It's a true privilege to share this conversation with a visionary at the forefront of efforts to reshape the world for the better. Um, so, of course, Ray, there's about a hundred different questions we can ask you. We only have one minute. So, we um, thought we'd begin by um, having you share with us um, how you've spent now over 40 years in the field of international development, really working on a wide range of issues from global hunger to human rights. Can you share uh, with us a little bit of how you originally came to think that might be your calling? Um, was there perhaps an experience that you had as a young college student or how did, how did you get this journey started? Well, thanks, Nancy and Ed. Nice to be with you and um, and uh, share this moment and uh, and have enjoy this conversation. Um, you know, I suppose in my particular case, uh, you know, we all kind of have life experiences that are you know life forming and, and shaping. In my particular case, I was um, our family was sort of plucked out of the kind of the uh, the comfort of a sort of very ethnic neighborhood in New York City and then plunked down in North Carolina in the 1950s. Um, when North Carolina was still um, a segregated state. And so, um, you know, we went from sort of a very familiar sort of uh, neighborhood experience in New York City to living in North Carolina, surrounded by, um, uh, you know, largely Southern Baptist sort of culture um, and, um, and a city in uh, Charlotte at the time, which was, you know, quite segregated. And, um, and so suddenly, you know, that was that became part of our reality. And then we were we were also Roman Catholics in a, in a very Southern Baptist state where Roman Catholics were not were in a minority. I think we were one percent or somebody even suggested one tenth of one percent in the state of North Carolina at that time. And so we sort of found ourselves kind of living in a kind of a, our own little sort of uh, world of um you know, discriminated against as Catholics in some sense, and kind of you know, living in our own little enclave, um, and then um, and then at the same time, kind of watching the um, you know the discrimination around us on on racial grounds, which was kind of something we just you know we just weren't exposed to in the North, and um, and so I sort of grew up with that, and then um, I ended up going to the first integrated high school in North Carolina. Um, before the civil rights bill. And, and there were sort of lots of experiences about that that kind of, I suppose you might say, sensitized me to discriminatory you know, policies and to the world of um, 
segregation and civil rights in North Carolina. And, and as, as you may remember, some of the early demonstrations in the civil rights movement started in Greensboro, North Carolina at a lunch counter and kind of, you know, we kind of took off from there. Um, and Martin Luther King was very much a presence for, for those of us who were kind of watching that, you know, from that vantage point. And then as it happened, I ended up as a college student at Notre Dame at a time when the president of the university was the chairman of the Civil Rights Council for the federal government under, um, uh, under uh, pres you know, several presidents, under Lyndon Johnson and then later under Richard Nixon. And so um, as a consequence, at Notre Dame, where I was an undergraduate, there was a, a steady parade of civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King, who were coming to campus at all the time, you know, rather on a regular basis. And really, um, and this was a period again in the late, late 60s when um, the civil rights movement was really at its peak. There was lots going on. Um, you know, there were, a, a King himself was assassinated. Um, the cities were, you know, burning down in many places as a response to that. There was a lot of, a lot of violence around, around civil rights and the civil rights movement at that time. And in, the, in addition, on a global level, there was, um, you know, there was major famine in Biafra in Nigeria. And so I was kind of caught up in the civil rights movement of that era, um, having grown up a witness to it, and then sort of in this very, you know, very fertile ground at Notre Dame. And then it was also the era of the Vietnam movement. So I was kind of caught up in social justice, uh, the social justice moment of the 60s. And, um, and then I began to think a little bit about, well, so this was something that motivated me. What was I, was there anything I could do about it? And I got very caught, caught up in thinking about, you know, well, is, is anybody addressing these hunger questions? And sort of how does one find one's way into maybe making a difference on that particular problem? But I really didn't have an easy answer um, for that. Um, so I was kind of grappling with it for a while um, and ended up doing a degree in international development as an undergraduate, but then sort of struggling with, well, where do I go from here? That's fascinating, Ray. Well, so then against that backdrop, how did you initially choose to focus on food security and tropical agriculture? Well, I ended up, um, as many did in that era, I mean, ended up going to Europe, hitchhiking around, and I ended up in Israel on a kibbutz. Um, and I had had some experience uh, working on farms before that. They put me in the in the barn and put me in charge of the 4 a.m. Uh, milking uh, milking uh, shift. And um, <laughs> And, uh, and I ended up becoming really interested in seeing how the Israelis um, in this very arid environment were actually being very successful at, at agriculture and, um, and growing fruit and growing livestock and growing poultry and doing all sorts of things that you wouldn't imagine they'd be able to do, but they were making it happen and sort of kind of left me with this feeling like, wow, this is kind of interesting to see with technology and with kind of um, some real smarts and imagination, you can perhaps address hunger issues if you're thinking about it creatively the way the Israelis were doing. So I tried to begin, I began thinking about how could I sort of connect sort of, uh, I suppose you might say that interest in, um, I suppose you might say international issues and cultures with a practical um, kind of a skill that would actually allow me to uh, maybe make a contribution. So I was, and I was very, you know, I thought about doing a PhD in anthropology, but then I thought, well, you know, in some ways that's a very extractive sort of activity. You know, you go and you study the culture, you sort of learn all about it, go back, write a PhD thesis and get a, a job as an academic. Mm -hmm. I was more interested in, you know, is there some way I could have that kind of an experience and leave the people with some material benefit for having, you know, been among them. 
And so, um, so this combination of trying to be in the world in, in, as a specialist in tropical agriculture was kind of my answer to that question. I see. Fascinating. So um, I understand you lived and worked in South America for over 15 years uh, during a time when there was considerable political upheaval and change. You were living in Peru during the height of the conflict with the uh, Shining Path uh, Guerrilla Movement. Um, and major recession in Peru and major transitions to democracy in Brazil and Chile. Um, what were those experiences like and how did they shape your perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the first night I arrived in Colombia in Bogota, I was on my way in from the airport and that night the guerrillas had taken over the Dominican embassy and, and there were like, there were ambassadors from like 14 or 15 countries, including the US ambassador that were held hostage in that embassy. So my first, you know, dropping into uh, in that world was kind of uh, uh, marked by, by a guerrilla action on a major on a major embassy in a capital city in Latin America. So from the very first, you, I began to realize, you know, this was a very different environment where, you know, simply working with farmers um, on uh, technological issues around food security was not going to be all I was going to be exposed to, and and. Uh, at the same time, it was the emergence of the drug uh, cartels in Latin America. So there was, you know, that was kind of brewing in certain other parts of the country and, and was also shaping the, that environment. Um, but there were also a lot of other things going on that were really interesting and positive. I mean, there were, you know, opportunities to, um, to work um, with indigenous movements that were beginning to kind of assert their rights. Um, there were, you know, there were other groups um, uh, working on women's issues, so there were opportunities to work on those kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, but there were also um, uh, some real challenges with these countries we're all facing as they were, many of them were under dictatorial regimes, authoritarian regimes, and um, particularly Brazil and Chile. And, uh, and there was a struggle, I think, uh, amongst, uh, within the civil society as to how do we sort of get out of this situation? But there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of um, risk that was involved in actually kind of maneuvering in those countries at, at those particular times. So, for example, in Brazil, why I, I was in Brazil working still under the military government. And, you know, we had to be very careful about the groups we spoke to, the groups that we fund, the kinds of activities that we would support and whether they would be seen necessarily by the government as, you know, maybe um, too involved with human rights concerns or too political in the sense that they might be supporting a particular group that the, that the military thought was in some sense a threat. You know, in other words, you couldn't support labor groups, you couldn't support minority Afro-Brazilian groups, you couldn't, you know, there were, you couldn't support certain groups associated with the Catholic Church. There were all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, landmines you could step on in that environment. But little, literally, while I was in both Brazil and Chile, those things began to change and you began to see, um, you know, the, the, dict the, the dictatorial regimes wanting to kind of uh, legitimize themselves, take off the uniforms, put on suits and ties and, um, and then get themselves elected. And, and as a consequence of some of that, um, you know, as it turns out, in some cases, the generals didn't get elected and there was a return to democracy, which was quite, quite dramatic in some of these, in some of these settings. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, what would you say are some of the more exciting things you experienced or were a part of while working in Latin America? Well, you know, if you sort of think about, think back and sort of think, well, what legacy things can you kind of say that were kind of meaningful that are still, I think, going on? And um, I was very involved with um, funding the emergence of 
indigenous movements across the region, both in um, all up and down the Andean chain and the Andean countries, as well as in Brazil. And, um, and, and I'm working also on the, on, on the Amazon very early on when a lot of people were just, you know, just beginning to wake up to the importance of the Amazon in terms of climate change. And uh, one of the things, so there were really kind of two parts of that. One was building confederations of indigenous peoples organizations, both in the highlands of the Andes and also in the Amazon basin that then began to um, organize and press for recognition of indigenous rights, and which was really kind of early, early days. And many of them were under considerable pressure because of these authoritarian governments. But as they democratized, you know, these groups were being recognized. They were being recognized internationally. Um, they began to, um, you know, get recognition at the UN in terms of, you know, new provisions and international law. Um, and all of that had to do with the fact that, you know, we were in some sense funding the training of training of their leadership. We were funding the consolidation of their organizations. We were, you know, funding the, you know, the the uh, their presence as actors on a national stage. So that was that was all very exciting. And then, kind of connected with that on the on the uh, Amazonian side, um, I was very involved in a in in the funding of um, this very what started out as a very kind of modest effort to try to get recognition for what a group in the Brazil, which were basically rubber tappers who had. Base, had been during the Second World War providing all the rubber that was coming out of the Amazon for the Allied armies in Europe because all of the rubber from Asia was no longer available because of Japanese, Japanese occupation. Hmm. And these people had been basically, you know, you know, uh, hiking through the Amazon because there's no, there are no rubber plantations in South America. You you harvest it from the jungle, and um, so there was a movement of them who basically had a proposition which was. They were arguing that they, you know, that the people who are residents of the jungle or the, the Amazon, Amazonian forests, the indigenous and the rubber tappers were the best stewards of that forest for the long, their long-term preservation and conservation. And so what emerged was a rubber tappers movement and the idea of creating extractive reserves or in effect conservation forests in the Amazon that these groups would actually manage and preserve on behalf of the world, if you will. And so um, it, it happened, this was happening right as the government, um, the military government was in transition to a more democratic government and these extractive reserves in the Brazilian Amazon were recognized and legitimized and under national law and, and that, that they still exist as a concept and as something that you know, has, um, has state protection or at least it did until, until at least the last president was elected in, in Brazil. And so there's some threat to that now, but, it's, but I think it'll probably be revived if he moves on in the not, not too distant future. Um, the return to democracy in these countries is some is really a dramatic experience. If you've ever kind of been in countries that are under dictatorial rule and you experience the fear that people have about what that means and you know that some of their relatives have disappeared in the middle of the night and the, you know they're sometimes lost you know forever and on other cases, they're returned, but they, you know, maybe, you know, they may be returned after imprisonment and, and other kinds of um, mistreatment. Um, and th these are environments where there's been a lot, there were a lot of human rights uh, abuses. So, um, so being in Brazil, when, you know, the democratic government returned there um, was kind of breathtaking and, uh, uh, and, and watching people get up the courage to go to the polls and vote for return to democracy was something to watch. And then the same in Chile, 
it, these things were, you know, they weren't done in one process. There were sort of, there was a vote to determine whether there should be an election for a return to democracy. And people had to overcome their fears to go to vote for that first election. And then in the second one, they had to, you know, they feared that they were going to be, if they voted against the dictator, they would be in some sense found out and, and um, that would be to their detriment. But nonetheless, people voted for democratic reform. And in the aftermath, there was much jubilation in both places. So it's th those were two remarkable experiences. And, you know, I didn't have a role to play in those democratic transitions. Uh, you know, I, the funding we did to some degree supported groups that were, you know, instrumental in getting people out to vote. But after the elections, there was an enormous opportunity to actually, it's a very exciting moment because what happens is you have people, a whole society reconstructing democracy, creating the parliament again, creating you know, the research institutions to, you know, to inform public policy, building uh, a discussion about human rights, um, thinking about you know, what kinds of um, social justice initiatives need to be kind of uh, put in place now that the military is gone. And so all of that is, you know, just explodes um, kind of almost instantaneously. So you're kind of riding this wave of democratic euphoria for you know, several years while you're kind of um, watching, this, uh, watching this drama. Um, take place. So I was privileged in both of those cases to be, you know, around during those particular moments. Remarkable. Um, so Ray, <laughs> I I know this is about the time I first sort of got to know you a little bit. Um, but I know that you had uh, five years living and working in Bangladesh um, as the country representative for the Ford Foundation. But what I understand of Bangladesh at that time was it was one of the world's poorest countries. How did that experience further shape your thinking? Yeah, so I arrived in Bangladesh in the end of 1995 and, and the beginning of 1996. And just maybe along the lines of the, um, of the, you know, the previous comment, um, it turned out that uh, there was a movement there to overthrow a dictatorial regime that had been in power for a number of years. And so here I was again in another return to democracy. Um, I, I, I jokingly sort of take credit for all of these dem democratic transitions. Every time I showed up, there seemed to be a democratic transition. But anyway, keep showing um, up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, anyway, um, but um, yeah. And so the, what it was going on there was there had been a, um, an overthrow of a, uh, of a democratic elected government in, in, the, um, in 1971. And here it was 1990, 1991, and the civil society in, in Bangladesh at the time was pushing the, dem the, the dictator who put on a suit, trying to push him out. And he was, you know, turned out as I, literally as I was arriving in the country, he was put under house arrest and um, uh, there were mass demonstrations in the streets. There was a provisional government put into power. The military stepped down and stepped aside. And suddenly there was, you know, democratic governance in Bangladesh. So again, I was kind of reliving what I'd lived, you know, been living in Brazil and um, and the experience uh, a bit in Chile, where you know you're in this wave of democratic reform. And um, but and but Bangladesh was extraordinary in other ways, apart from that democratic transition, in that it it became, you know, as one of my one of my uh, colleagues referred to, it, kind of the Wall Street of development in terms of poverty alleviation programming. You know, it's the home of the Grameen Bank and um, Mohammed Yunus, who's the Nobel Prize winner for his work on, on microcredit. And as it turned out, the Ford Foundation that I was working for had actually given some of the first grants to Mohammed Yunus to get his uh, 
his bank going when he was a prof an economics professor and he was doing sort of small experiments as an economist. And basically they gave him money to kind of, you know, set up a, a little credit account to start the bank. And by the time I got there, it was well as it was get, becoming, you know, larger and more well-established. And um, it really sort of took off and became kind of internationally known during that period. And I was, I was the chair of his um, donor consortium for uh, the time I was there, portion of the time I was there. And then, um, uh, and so I witnessed a lot of the, the growth of the bank, the diversification of the bank. Um, you know, it really became, went from being a bank for the poor, giving $50 loans to being almost a kind of a holding company of a whole variety of social enterprises that were doing all sorts of things with poor, with poor families from um, helping them start sort of mid-sized businesses to, um, you, know, you know, building sort of a telecom system um, that, you know, served rural communities, all sorts of things that, you know, I think many people would be surprised about. And then there was another group called the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee or BRAC, which is the, today the largest NGO in the world. And is actually, I think, I think for the last five years been ranked the most successful and most outstanding not-for-profit in the world that also had a, a, not, a micro credit pro, program and it's, it's uh, founder, um, uh, Sir Fazal Abed, who's a, uh, who was a, uh, an accountant who basically after, during the Bangladesh Liberation War in 1971 left Shell Oil Company because there were, you may remember some three or four years of famines and, and he started this organization as a kind of famine relief group. And then it became this very large NGO with micro credit programs and a whole variety of programs for the poor but the thing that was quite remarkable in his case was he was beginning to, to start social enterprises at a time when nobody was really doing that. And unlike many other places where many of these social enterprises stay small and, and uh, maybe serve two, three, 400 people, his are, you know, his are massive in scale um, in terms of um, there's groups that work on dairying, there's a craft a, a, a program. There's, um, they, uh, they run a national seed provision program that you know, basically provides seed to poor farmers. All of these things are very large, very profitable, and they actually fund the not-for-profit work in ways that you see literally hardly anywhere else in the world. And now their programs are, um, are also in, uh, in Africa and other parts of Asia. They, they're the first Southern-based and not-for-profit to actually become an international NGO with programs outside their home country. And, uh, and I'm uh, pleased to say I'm actually on the board of that today. So I'm continuing to stay involved in Bangladesh, even though I'm sort of long gone from you know, living in the country. Really important. Um, so over time, uh, I know that after some of these experiences, you, you really came to a strong conviction that international aid needed to be more centered on human rights and focused less on technocratic approaches um, to, you know, providing aid that often couldn't be supported by the country or by the region, uh, region's infrastructure. Where did, where did that start to come forward after these incredible experiences that really, I can see, reshaped your thinking? Well, you know, the first period of my, my time in, uh, in many of these countries, I was really I was fortunate to work with organizations that were really very um, grassroots focused. So in other words, I, I was funding landless labor organizations, labor unions, agricultural co-ops, um, 
women's, you know, urban women's um, uh, organizations, uh, you know, in very poor barrios of cities across Latin America. So I was kind of looking at the world from really the, you know, at the, the real bottom, in other words, the poorest of the poor and, and trying to figure out, well, how can they be organized and effectively advance their own interests? And, and, and many of them were led by incredibly charismatic people and who were very smart street smart as well as intelligent in ways that, um, you know, that would probably, where if they weren't in the circumstance they'd be in, they'd they could be, you know, corporate CEOs or, you know, very successful politicians, but they're coming out of very poor neighborhoods. But nonetheless, they were very good organizers and they were very effective leaders at building the capabilities and skills and even sometimes the financing needed to kind of advance their agendas. But what would happen would be they would get so far and then they would hit a wall. And the wall was usually um, had to do with one or two or three different things. One of them would be, there'd be some policy provision that would exclude them from the next level of opportunity. And usually, for example, that might occur in financial markets. So agricultural co-ops would get, they'd build up capital, they'd build up you know, marketing capability, they'd build up productivity, and then they wanna get into the retail markets um, or the wholesale markets um, with you know, their produce. And there's, um, you know, they can't get capitalized from the banks because they don't have enough capital. They don't have enough threshold capital to, for the banks to give them, um, you know, larger loans. So they're literally sort of cut out. So um, whereas you think the policies would actually enable them to get in, but the policies are set up to keep, you know, to keep them out so that the larger guys make can maintain control. The other version of that is what you might call sort of just. Um, corruption in the marketplace. So they arrive at the, you know, they arrive at the wholesale markets and there's all sorts of price fixing going on and all the, and all the wholesalers uh, conspire to basically lowball them and basically get their produce for nothing and, um, and block them out of the market unless they basically cave to, you know, to some ridiculously low, lowball price that's just unrealistic. So you end up, they end up dumping the produce because they can't get a fair price. And so I kept, I kept seeing these situations where whenever these things got to scale and got successful, there'd be some either an obstacle, some sort of corrupt manipulation of the market situation, or even some cases violence and some efforts to arrest the leaders and in some ways disrupt the organizations. And, um, and so I began to realize, and then in other cases, you know, you had many of the groups, they were racial minorities, Afro-Colombians, indigenous Colombians, uh, Afro-Peruvians um, in Bangladesh, even, you know, you had Hindus in a largely Muslim country, Hindu minorities, um, Christian minorities. And so, you know, you'd see the kind of discrimination we have here in the United States, but you see other forms of it in other, in other places. So I, more and more, I just became convinced that um, there, the system to some degree was rigged against some of these folks in terms of way, the way these, um, uh, policies were set up and implemented. In other words, they were almost set up to exclude or, you know, um, give advantage to certain groups and not to others. And um, and no matter what, um, and then the other thing you might say, there was, well, I suppose you might say institutional shortcomings. In other words, and, you know, we take it for granted that we have, you know, good institutions that are going to deliver the public services, are going to give us credit, are going to do this and that. In these other countries, these institutions aren't necessarily strong and they have to be built um, in ways where the governance of them is basically set up, you know, to ensure equity of access and the kinds of things we take for granted. Um, in these places, very often, they, 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 those kind of institutions don't exist. Um, they need to be built and then they need to be professionalized. And so I became very 
I became very obsessed with governance and human rights as two things that needed to be much more central to the way I was focusing, focusing on sort of development outcomes. I came to this field as a kind of a, you could say kind of a anthropologically trained technocrat with all this skill in, techn and, in tropical agriculture, but I began to realize that policy and governance were perhaps more important than the, what I knew about, you know, how to grow tropical crops. Um, because we could grow the crops, but if we couldn't sell them, then what was the point? You know, so um, that was kind of what I, that was kind of a bit of a conversion experience I went through as I, as I was dealing with, you know, these issues on, the, you know, in the real world on the ground. I know that, that you got quite a bit of attention at one point for an article that you wrote in the 90s um, on, I think it was called rights-based approach to development that really got things stirred up. So what, what was the inspiration for, for that? And what were you hoping to convey? I'm curious. Well, I, I had just come back to the United States and I was, um, I was, uh, I'd taken on the role of, of leading Oxfam America at that point in time. And I, um, and it was a moment where I was also trying to think a little bit about, you know, how could I bring some of that experience that I'd already had to Oxfam and kind of maybe reorient their approach uh, a bit because they were kind of going through some of the same kind of thinking as an organization, feeling like what they had been doing with grassroots groups wasn't working, that uh, you know, they were trying to empower people, but you know, they could empower them. But even if they did, oftentimes they were rebuffed by institutions and by, um, you know, also by the sort of structural realities in which they kind of, you know, were, uh, they lived and worked. And we were trying to figure out how to get a breakthrough there. And so, and, and, and as part of kind of developing a strategic plan, you know, I began to introduce slowly um, this idea that maybe we should be focusing a bit more on human rights. And Oxfam is part of a, an international um, confederation. And so what we began doing is talking within the larger confederation about, should we completely shift our identity to what we would call a rights-based approach to development, where that would be much more central to our thinking. Um, and it would, you know, basically shape, you know, the, the, the future of the organization. And a lot of that was based on the idea that, you know, technically under sort of the provisions of the internet of international law and in international human rights law, there is a, uh, you know, there are provisions for economic, social, and cultural rights, but they're often not recognized. And so we were thinking, well, this is a, this is an area maybe we should focus on because we're about sort of, you know, addressing issues of poverty and social justice. Why don't we embrace the rights, human rights charter and international law that's in place and it kind of make that the centerpiece of our identity as opposed to what at that time was being called the needs-based approach. The needs-based approach being people are hungry, you provide food or a way for them to raise food or you, if they're, you know, they don't have education, you build a school and you hope there's a teacher and you hope that the children get educated or if they don't, if they have a health problem, you build a clinic and, and this sort of this, most of the other international NGOs, that's what they were doing. But the problem with that was if there wasn't sort of state support for those institutions after a while, when the, when the donor money dried up, the programs usually collapsed and the clinics were empty and the schools were empty. And, and so all of that was for naught. And so we wanted to, we just felt that was no way to be sort of doing our work. And so we decided maybe this rights move to this rights agenda was, uh, would be a kind of wiser approach. See. Well, so Ray, then, um, you know, looking at the U.S. in the 60s and say the 70s, um, what was the human rights approach and how is it different from the current approach? 
Well, as I was saying, sort of, so in development at that time, basically this needs-based approach presumed that, um, there, that poverty was based on the absence of public goods. In other words, that people, you know, if only they had, uh, you, know, you know, access to basic services, um, that they would prosper or, you know, and so the idea was sort of construct these, these sort of social, this social, these social benefits in very sort of particular environments, you know, and so you work with this community, that community, or this region, or that region, and you're trying to address these, you know, gaps in the provision of these public goods. Well, um, the reality is, you, you know, if you really step back and look at this, um, you realize you may be helping 3,000 people or, you know, 500 families and, you know, you're kind of get everything set up and it's going along all right. But reality is once you leave, if there isn't a guarantee of some support from the state, that doesn't work. Mm. And, um, and literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of not-for-profits, that's what they do in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in this global development field, they, they're running their clinic and they're running their school and, but it only works as long as the money's there and, and as long as they provide the expertise. But there, so if you step back a second and say, well, if this is gonna work long-term, what has to happen? What has to happen is the government of that particular country has to recognize that people have a right to an education or a right to health or a right to public security um, and maybe even a right to a job and, uh, or at least a right to a livelihood. And so, um, but, but the thing that was happening um, in the West was we were just coming out of the Cold War, if you recall, in the 90s. You know, the Berlin Wall fell sort of end of 80s, early 90s, whatever. And one of the things that went on during the Cold War is in the, in the United States, we were conditioned as a nation to believe that the only rights were political and civil rights, to vote, to congregate, to debate, to elect our public officials and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the reality was when the Human Rights Charter was written in 1947 um, in San Francisco as part of the creation of the United Nations, the charter would actually be under the, to some degree under the, you know, I don't wanna say under the direction, but clearly with the active participation of Eleanor Roosevelt also included economic, social and cultural rights. But during the Cold War, the United States, in some sense, sort of shred, shredded the or tore the, the Human Rights Charter in half and said, no, we're really about political and civil rights. We don't want to worry about these economic, social, cultural rights. And that's what the communists do. Mm. So we ended up in this really weird world where the, the sort of the, the social socialist or social democratic or, or communist governments in Russia and China and the social democratic governments of Europe they were focusing not only on civil political rights, but also on building societies that had social protections, that had, um, you know, right, where they recognized to some degree the rights to education and, and rights to other kinds of social protection, uh, rights to health. And they were building that into their constitutional architecture. Meanwhile, we were basically you know, in denial about that. And only with the end of the Cold War was it possible to restart the debate within the human rights community in the United States about, well, wait a minute, you know, why did we drop this in the first place? So shouldn't we kind of rebuild the human rights charter and actually think about whether people, even here in the United States, whether right, a right to health is something we should be actually uh, considering. And, you know, and why is our health system such a mess? 
if we had a right to health, we would maybe have a one payer system. But basically, the, we've set up a private, we've set up uh, healthcare as a business, and therefore it's become too expensive. And therefore, the discussion about rights gets in the way of, you know, um, the market economy um, profitability of, of people being sick. Mm -hmm. So we're about keeping people sick in order to make profit rather than about wellness um, under a rights-based approach. So our, our discussion was really about the idea that we needed to kind of reframe the conversation between citizens and their governments about the social contract. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that was to foster conversations, civil conversations about human rights and about rights, not only to vote and to congregate, but also rights to health and rights to a livelihood and rights to the you know, appropriate protection from your, by your government for, from any sort of you know, insurrectionist or violent elements in your society. And in some ways, if you think about it, because I've been living in these you know, dictatorial regimes where there were in other countries where there were guerrilla movements, if you think about it, if people's rights aren't respected, they pick up guns because yeah. they don't believe the social contract works anymore. Right. And what happened in Washington, DC in January 6th? Mm we had an insurrection. For me, that looked very much like Latin America. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was everything I saw in Latin America for like 20 years was what happened in Washington, DC. Yeah. And so um, it's guns or rights. <laughs> so, so we began to actually argue that, you know, in terms of long-term benefits, and also if you want to work yourself out of a job mm -hmm. in development, mm -hmm. it is in some ways wiser to think about, you know, pressing grievance to the state to actually deliver these public services so that the government takes over and the foreign aid programs can basically disappear and people own their own destiny and they own their own development process. Mm -hmm. Well, so then how is government really a part of this equation if international health is to be truly successful? Well, I think one of the things that got advanced as a consequence of this debate about the rights-based approach was whether in fact we should be rethinking the way we do development um, as a partner. In other words, a lot of what was going on when I was when I first started was all of the development professionals were generally white males coming mm -hmm. from Europe or the United States. And we were the, supposed to be the smart people bringing sort of technological or other kinds of wisdom to these you know, poorer countries. And there was very little assumption that the there was a knowledge base in the country that we could rely on to you know actually accomplish what we were trying to achieve so a lot of the work was in some sense almost being done and led by by foreigners mm -hmm. and so a lot of what was going part of this critique of development was maybe we need to realize that the only places we've succeeded is where the people have actually owned the development process themselves they have basically become co-equal partners with us. We've given them a lot of responsibility. We've basically said, we want to support you, but you know, demonstrate you know, that you can really manage the funds and manage the initiative and we'll support you more and we'll support you as a co-equal partner. And, and where we had done that, actually that's where success, that's where we saw success. And where we had become sort of technocrats in charge of projects that really where people had little voice and little involvement and little say, you know, they tended to generally fail. And so part of this was sort of switching the whole discussion around to what's called an ownership agenda. This was adopted by the Obama administration. So there was a major reform process that I was involved in with other, other folks during the lead up to the Obama elections. Um, and we were lobbying both McCain and, 
and uh, Obama cam uh, campaigns at the time to basically adopt this Obama, this, uh, this uh, excuse me, ownership agenda. And uh, the Obama administration did, and Hillary Clinton did particularly, and she literally sort of used it, incorporated language from us into her speeches. So, um, so in some sense, we were trying to kind of get the ownership agenda kind of taken on board as also a way of building the discourse on rights as well. So this is, so in part, this is kind of the assumption you end up with here is that effective development is about um, having a very active and engaged civil society that wants to own its, its own destiny and its own development agenda, an effective state with you know, quality institutions that in some sense are, are figuring out the right way for the market to be inclusive and, a, um, and, uh, uh, and engaging in sort of, sort of equitable development outcomes. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of get that, you know, that little triumvirate working in that way, that's kind of where we've seen the most success. Hmm. Uh, well, you've, um, you've alluded to the need for structural change. What, what do you mean by that? And why are structural solutions better? We, people use that sort of term a lot, and, and, and you'll hear it even in, in some of the discourse coming out of Washington these days. And I think what people mean by that is that, um, you know, palliative sort of solutions or charity is 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 okay, and it's it's essential at times. And but at the end of the day, you need to kind of institutionalize certain kinds of solutions to problems in order to get a durable outcome that actually has benefit and maybe has sort of equity built into it. And so, you know, um, so it, when you're thinking about the kind of social justice work that that I've been doing and others do, you you're kind of asking the question, why are people in this predicament in the first place? And and one way I found of looking at it was, you know, what are the barriers to inclusion that that are keep in their way? In other words, most poor people you deal with, people working three or four jobs or or people you know, living in certain situations and certain neighborhoods, there are oftentimes reasons why they're not, why they're in that circumstance. You know, redlining in cities, you know, that was something that was being done that was keeping African-Americans out of certain neighborhoods. Um, discrimination um, in terms of you know, the way housing neighborhoods were being built and who could live in them. You know, these, are, these are issues where they, they needed policy solutions and they needed policy enforcement in order to actually overcome a discriminatory practice. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, keeping people in poverty. And if you kind of, and the same thing, if you sort of look at, you know, um, the way kind of money flows and who gets money and who doesn't get money and, you know, and what, what it, what, what's required to enable you to get into a, you know, get adequate credit um, very often, um, you know, there are oftentimes all sorts of barriers that will either, you know, make it difficult for you to get credit or ensure that if you get the credit, you're likely to end up bankrupt anyway, trying to pay off the interest or or the penalties for um, you know missing a payment. And so, um, so there's so that in some ways you have to kind of unpack what is it that are the obstacles to inclusion for poor and marginalized populations. And if you can start to do that, then you're starting to create durable structural change that actually um, that that will ensure that you're solving the real problem, not sort of offering a palliative solution. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe briefly, Ray, you could sort of help us understand how you took this growth in your knowledge um, and really implemented the human rights approach when you were at Oxfam. Well, I think part of what we just tried to do was kind of just get everyone to go, go through, I, I think, sort of a mindset shift um, and think a little bit more about how to, 
you know, how we would do this. And, and to some degree, we, we, the simple thing we did was we basically said, um, the existing premise about poverty is that poverty is defined as the absence of public goods and that all of our organizations have been sort of set in motion to basically provide those public goods. But is that, should that be our job or should that be the job of, of a government? Um, because we're never gonna be able to do it at scale. So in some sense, we're set up to fail. So if, if we're set up to fail and we don't wanna be that, that's not who we wanna be, then what should we be doing? And so we basically define, redefine poverty as social exclusion. That was our simple definition of poverty. And then we said, so if poverty is social exclusion, what is the barrier to inclusion? And so in every, if you start to ask that question, it, it, you, you, you start thinking completely differently about how you look at a poverty situation. You look at a neighborhood and you ask, why are people living here and not somewhere else? And why is that house you know, in such terrible condition? And why are the roads so bad um, in this neighborhood? But if I drive 10 blocks over, the roads are terrific and the houses look good. Um, and usually if you poke around without too much, <laughs> without spending too much time, you, you can come up with three or four reasons why what you're looking at um, uh, has the appearance it does. And it usually has to do with some, some reasons why that group or people in particular are being excluded from the benefits that exist five blocks away or in the rural areas, you know, in the, in the more remote communities of small farmers or indigenous people or, you know, Afro-Colombians, um, uh, the same sorts of questions, you can ask the same sorts of questions. So, so then the rights-based approach sort of leads you to this question of what's, if, we, if we're presuming we want to advance sort of a, um, a more inclusive, you know, we want to have these people to be more included in the economy, what would what would kind of investments would have to be made and what kinds of policy would have to be in place and, and what kinds of um, grievances would have to be, be put before the state. And so in some ways, we moved from being a, a group that was sort of trying to invest just, you know, in kind of solving small problems at the local level to trying to ask bigger questions and link those the answers to those questions to institutions that had responsibility for the people that um, were not served. And so we became more of an advocacy organization as a consequence and less of a service provider or a service delivery agency, which is what most other big international NGOs are, primarily service delivery, because they stay with this kind of, you know, this notion of a needs-based approach, which is basically provide the public goods, the missing public goods. Our view was the state should provide it, and we're going to make the argument to the state of why they should provide it. And we should take the moral high ground in doing that and feel unabashed and unashamed about, and, and, you know, in putting those kind of arguments forward. But the, the other part of that was, we're not the residents of those countries, so is our voice the appropriate voice? So you have to build you know, confidence in the people living in those countries that they wanna advance that, that kind of critique to their government. Um, so part of the trick is you know, becoming, helping people see, that, see their world in a somewhat different way and feel that you know, they have the, the strength and the intelligence and the wherewithal and the organizations to basically advance a rights-based approach in their own country before their own government mm -hmm. without necessarily feeling retri retribution. So, so we had to take our staff as well as the partners we were working with in these countries through that kind of a process. So Ray, I, I mean, I personally witnessed in the 90s that globalization became a central character in lots of conversations about how the world was changing. Um, how did this emergence of globalization and what was happening in the private sector start to become really much more important as any one of us discusses, you know, the future of 
international development? Yeah, well, one of the things we kind of stumbled on is a kind of a fact that um, we, you know, it was kind of it was um, hiding in plain sight, but we hadn't noticed was um, that with globalization, the private sector and private capital was really overtaking, if not surpassing overwhelmingly, the amount of funding that was going into countries around the world through traditional foreign aid channels. And I think at the point we started looking at this, um, I think foreign aid was 8% of foreign direct investment as opposed to um, 92% coming from uh, private sources. And that, num and that and those volumes were growing um, as you know, countries like China you know, were becoming wealthier and starting to invest and had, had their own sort of development financing institutions. So we began to realize that the development horizons for the poor we're really going to be shaped much more by the market and by the private sector than they were going to be by foreign aid. Because foreign aid really was, was an artifact of the post-World War II period when many countries were coming out of sort of a colonial experience and there weren't global or international financing its mechanisms. And so we create the World Bank and, and we start foreign aid programs. And it taught, there was a time when foreign aid was literally, could be la a large portion of national budgets. So for example, right now, we see Afghanistan in freefall economically and otherwise. And when the U.S. pulled out, it not only pulled out you know, its troops and its citizens, it also pulled out its money. And the U.S. US contributions, the annual national budget of Afghani government was over 50%. Mm -hmm. So now, the, now they can't pay their civil servants. I mean, so the whole system will, you know, is, is kind of in freefall there. That's kind of what it used to look like in many other places, but, but with uh, globalization, you know, the financial market started to really move. What that led, led us to do was little think, think about some of these problems that we're confronting the world um, in terms of, you know, what's the way we should be addressing some big issues that were confounding um, the development work we were doing. One of them was HIV AIDS. Um, and, you know, the AIDS pandemic kind of took the world by storm and was, you know, very threatening. And literally countries we were working in had had HIV prevalency rates of 35% and literally the most thriving business in many communities you'd go to was building caskets. Um, and literally I, was go, I would go on trips to these countries and literally many of the meetings I was supposed to be at, literally half the people that were supposed to be there were in funerals that day. Um, and this would repeat itself over and over and over again. And, um, and so we began to kind of challenge the pharmaceutical industry that had a, you know, had antiretrovirals to say, well, what are you doing for, you know, these countries that have no anti-retroviral you know, access. And not only were they doing nothing, they were actually blocking the, the access to these medicines because it under the, we were very involved in sort of the World Trade Organization uh, discussions about um, uh, intellectual property and other aspects of trade rules, which were basically limiting the, um, the, the, the um, distribution of these antiretrovirals to poor countries because the, the pharmaceutical country, companies that had had created them wanted to retain both intellectual property control and um, and a pricing structure that was astronomical at the time and that could only be afforded by, you know, North Americans or Europeans who had um, you know insurance coverage either through the state or through the market, and therefore they were there were they were not worried about the fact that literally millions of people were dying in the southern you know in the in, in the global south and they were not going to do anything about it and literally told us that. So we you know, basically challenged them through public campaigning, Oxfam combined with um, Doctors Without Borders and a big campaign um, uh, 
uh, called Access to Medicines, and um, and we were able to, and 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 ironically at the time, pharma, big pharma, was suing the South African government to prevent the um, the sale of generic drugs in South Africa. Um, similarly, they were suing the Brazilian government because the Brazilian government was exercising its right under the WTO to access generics, um, and the pharmaceutical companies were trying to block that as well. And we basically challenged, you know, all the major pharmaceutical companies here in the United States and in, the, and in Europe, basically on moral grounds, to back off. And um, and ultimately, we succeeded in that. And um, and now today, you don't hear much about HIV/AIDS, but that was a, that was that was a bit of a battle royal over how you know international capital and globalization could solve a problem, but was choosing not to, in the interest of profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've done other things. Um, we had an interesting campaign on, you know, look, challenging some of the leading companies on sustainability practices, a campaign called Behind the Brands, where we challenged them to a race to the top to be, you know, they claim to be the most sustainably um, organized country companies in the world. We just, we challenged 10 of the, the, of the leading ones, um, Coke, Pepsi, um, Danone, uh, uh, Nestle, um, uh, Unilever, all to basically this race to the top, and we we ranked them on seven basic sustainability criteria, and um, and we basically told them that we're going to rank you, but uh, we'll rank you. Um, you can help us set up the ranking system, and we, you can we can work with you inside your company to kind of give you the best score possible. But nonetheless, we're also going to challenge you on some of the areas where we think you're you're weak, and we're going to do that publicly. And we did that, and many of these companies sort of moved their policies forward considerably. Um, we also worked on the farm bill, trying to overcome some of the, the, the ways in which um, the lob, U.S. lobbies on the food industry and the, um, um, uh, the shipping industry were trying to control the, the international food aid, which was undermining our ability to get food to countries quickly during famines. Um, we, um, we also worked on the poultry industry, where you've got a lot of um, workers on the line you know, working on these rapid production lines where they're getting carpal tunnel syndrome and they have, you know, they have no bathroom breaks and they're working long hours, sometimes overtime and the working conditions are rather poor. We challenged them and got significant changes. And um, and then we worked on farm worker issues in, in uh, various parts of the country, particularly in California and some other states where farm worker issues are quite important. So, so we've been kind of doing a lot of this work where we're identifying a problem both internationally and domestically. And then we're trying to find a big, policy solution for it, and in some cases, challenging companies to be more responsible um, in the way they're treating their workers and the way they're marketing their products. Right. I love that. (laughs) This has just been a fascinating conversation, and um, I just, I I have so much admiration for the work that you've done, um, and I, I, I so appreciate you sharing this with us. Um, Nancy and I both, you know, I think we've been challenged by this discussion, and I know that I speak for both of us as well as our listeners, um, that we have a, a better understanding of um, this world stage and um, the many things that uh, impact it. Um, we've enjoyed our time together with you today, and we know that your insights will continue to resonate with us for some time. Um, and we're, to be honest, honored that you have uh, taken the time to share uh, so much with us. Um, your commitment to injustice changed the course of U.S. aid and corporate thinking. Um, it's given me hope that uh, this change will be lasting and will continue. Um, 
And uh, our audience can follow you in your work as head of Notre Dame University's Colby Institute for Global Development, uh, where you also have more recorded podcasts on the website um, that are definitely a must hear. Um, that's available on the website, which is www.pulte.nd.edu. Um, Ray, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Um, and as our own agent of change, our Change Lab project will be launching very soon at www.yourchangelab.com, where you'll find fun, educational, gamified courses making a difference to the nonprofit community. Stay tuned for our next episode, which should launch in the next two weeks. Thanks so much, Ray. Been a real pleasure, Nancy and Ed, and look forward and congratulations on your uh, program, and I look forward to listening in.